Welcome to the Love Anarchy Podcast in the Relationship Rebellion, where we get deep about love, relationships, and dating. And might I add, spirituality. I'm your host, Andrea Atherton, Manifest in Love Coach, here today to talk about the disparity when it comes to parental responsibility. And while men have stepped in a whole lot more and spend a whole lot more time than that, just the average of 11 minutes that was reported back some 40, 50 years ago, there's still that unspoken responsibility that women have to take on. It's not talked about prior to becoming a parent. We know parenting is hard, but having a full-time job and then coming home and being primarily responsible for the children, homework and school, and oftentimes cooking and taking care of the house. Today's guest, Maria Jakenhoek, is a specialist in helping women find joy and fulfillment in motherhood and finding a balance for self-care. Not only that, she specializes in trauma that comes up and helps women find a way to heal and integrate it. Without further ado, Maria Jakenhoek. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you, and I've been really uh, passionate about this topic for a long time, but you've really reignited my passion about it. Oh, I'm very excited to talk with you about it too, Andrew. Yeah, because this is what you do. This is what you do your coaching on. You coach women dealing with the stresses of motherhood and dealing with postpartum depression and anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my moms who are struggling in motherhood are my focus, and I primarily focus on moms who are struggling with postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. I also like to focus on moms who are cycle breakers because when we're breaking cycles is a time when we realize that there's a lot of trauma in their life, whether it's their personal life or our family of origin. And so, you know, things like depression and anxiety can pop up through there. So it's all interconnected. Yes, exactly. And I love that you point that out because people get caught off guard and then they're like, am I depressed because of this or no? But one, whenever we go through huge changes like marriage, like even getting in a new relationship, but having children brings up everything to be healed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, that's what I found with myself is that for me, becoming a mom has been the biggest sort of trigger for releasing a lot of stored trauma that I actually wasn't even aware I had. I thought I dealt with it like back in the day in my 20s when I did my therapy. But then when I had my child, it was just like, it was like a volcano erupted with this brand new stuff. So yeah, yeah it comes out. <laughs> There's so much vulnerability, which is good. We, you know, yeah. we are vulnerable, so we are softened to open up, and it motivates us to heal these things. And then we don't. Sometimes we don't have a choice but to heal them. Oh, absolutely! I think 
that's one of the reasons why I absolutely love focusing, uh, especially on moms who are cycle breakers, because being a cycle breaker in your family can be really, really difficult because oftentimes you're the first one who really not only notice that there's something wrong with how your family functions, but you're actually willing to stand up and do something about it. That in itself is traumatic a lot of the times. That is hard. And, you know, to top it all off, right, like postpartum, we have hormones flying all over the place so they can to our mental health state, to our physical state. So there's just like so much uh, coming at moms from all different directions. Yeah. So I really, again, love that phrase. And that's so true. But I feel like where we are, you know, the women, where we are in the world right now, many of us are taking on that challenge of breaking transgenerational trauma. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're breaking cycles left and right. And it's a lot of difficult work. And I think that's definitely part of the reason why you are seeing a lot more women struggling with mental health issues. Because as I said, breaking cycles is so heavy and so traumatic because we're all so invested in our families and our families of origin and our traditions that to be the person in the family to stand up and say, well, I think the way we've been doing this is wrong. It's not only really difficult, can be really traumatic, but then you can also turn your whole family against you. And that's a whole other thing to deal with. Yeah. It's kind of like either choosing yourself or choosing belonging. And that's a hard oh, yeah. thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because we as humans, we want to belong, right? That's part of our uh, genetic makeup. And so it is a very difficult thing to stand up there and be like, well, I'm going to cut off my family because they're toxic. Like, that's not easy for anyone. I was, I was just talking about that to a friend that I'm, and when my daughter came into my life, I became more brave or more clear about, you know, when it wasn't done to me, but when it mm -hmm. kind of was done to my daughter, maybe not as directly, but then I got mama bear and I'm like, and then I'm like, wait a minute, you're not going to do that to her and you're not going to do it to me either. Is that common too? Yeah, I think so. I think our, uh, that's part of the reason why I say motherhood is sort of uh, becomes a trigger because A, it can bring up a lot of our own memories from our childhood, even the ones that we have suppressed or don't have consciously because just because you don't remember yourself very well at two years old doesn't mean your body doesn't remember. So a lot of these visceral reactions could be to how you were treated as a child. Um, and then, yeah, you kind of, when you see something done to your child and you don't want that done to them, you might actually be able to open up your eyes and be like, yeah, this has been happening to me and it's still happening to me and I don't want it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a protection of the child and then yourself, but then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm thinking we were talking too about, I don't know if we're just noticing it more or it's getting diagnosed more is the post traumatic or the post partum depression and the postpartum anxiety, I'm finding more and more clients are coming to me. Is that because people are identifying the diagnosis more? Or do you think our culture is cultivating more pressure on women causing depression? I think it's a little bit of both. I think our diagnostic tools are getting better, which is good because I, the truth is, I think before a lot of postpartum depression and anxiety just slipped through the cracks. Nobody even noticed. I mean, my eldest is almost seven. And when I was pregnant with him, I don't really remember having much pregnancy pre-checks or even talks about postpartum depression. And that's only seven years ago. I mean, you go back even more, nobody was even talking about it. It was just 
as if it didn't exist. So I think part of it's diagnosing, but part of it, I think our, yeah, our culture and kind of our circumstances are adding to it because you and I were talking about a COVID COVID has been a doozy. Um, I mean, part of the reason why women uh, get postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety is because of isolation and lack of support and what has happened through COVID, right? Isolation, this forced isolation. And so, yeah, of course, our numbers are going up because these moms had to do it completely by themselves. No one's really meant to do it by themselves. And there wasn't even really a choice because when you're choosing between oh, am I putting my family at a serious risk for health issues or am I putting myself at a great risk for mental health? Like, which one do I choose? That's not even the choice anybody should be making. But so many women had to do it through the pandemic. But even your immune system is compromised when we're not connecting with people, too. That that compromise sometimes more so than being um, exposed to the virus. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, as I said before, like we are social, we are meant to be connected and that belonging is so important. And this connection is so important. And in some ways, with the creation of the nuclear family, what we have done is we have isolated families into tiny little units. And what's worse is that we have created these little pods where the mom takes on most of the responsibility. She's completely isolated, doing all of these things, doesn't really connect. So of course she's feeling worse physically, emotionally, mentally, everything. So yeah, absolutely. Your immune system is going to go. (laughs) Yeah. And even during COVID, it was the moms that was doing the homes, mostly were doing the homeschooling. And you'd think both parents are home, right? Working from home and that there'd be an equal distribution, but there was some disparity there with among my clients too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as much as we have made great strides in trying to create equality with between the men and the women, what we know is that we have more or less gotten to it in the workplace or at least closer to where we want to be. We have not made much progress in the home, unfortunately. So what we have done is created situations where if both parents are working, the mom's not only working her job, she then comes home and puts in another shift at home while the dad is only responsible for his work at an employer's place. That's completely unequal and unfair. And and it's not discussed. And I was thinking about after our meet and greet that I'm like, why does this happen? I'm like, because we don't know what parenting is going to be like. And it's almost mm-hmm. like we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But then you're hormonal, sleep deprived. You, you know, your frontal lobe is not working at all. So you're going to sit down and like pan something out with your spouse. And I think you even said you tried to do that before you and your husband brought children into the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, like, I've been with my husband for many, many years. We essentially grew up together. So we actually had a lot of talks about what our family would look like after children. So we had these ideas of what it would be like. And then when it actually happened, it didn't go the way that we planned. Because that's the other part. Like, even if you can plan out, you actually don't know what kind of people both of you are going to be once you become parents. Because we don't always talk about it, but becoming a mother is essentially a different birth of yourself as a human. And what we don't talk about are men as fathers. They're completely different and they're even less prepared than we are because no one has talked to them about fatherhood and what it looks like. So you have these two people who have no idea what they're going to look like making these plans. It's really hard to stick to them a lot of the times. And I think women instinctually, um, biologically, primitively 
have a, a intuitive sense on how to care for a child. And I think men watch that and they, they have no idea because you bonding with a child for nine months, you kind of know that child in a way where I think men, men don't have any instructions and kind of like, well, okay, you do it because I don't know what I'm doing. I think it really honestly depends. I think we do have some instincts, you know, like as you know, for any mom who's given birth, right? Like when you get that baby placed in your belly and they're crawling up to you to feed at the breast, right? Like those are instincts. Like you do have some instincts, but when it comes to some of the care in the home, actually, I don't think it was that instinctual, at least not for me. What I can say is for us, it was actually very different in the beginning. My husband had way more experience with babies than I did. I have never held really yeah I've never held a baby prior to having my own I know oh my gosh I have no siblings no cousins nothing so I came into it completely blindsided while he is a much older sibling and he cared for his sister when she was a baby so he actually was more equipped for it than I was but after a few months of me being the only one being at home and me being the only one providing all the care, I mean, guess who excelled at caring for the child? <laughs> like, it wasn't him, right? So I actually think while there are some things that are instinctual, most of it is actually environment. And the reason why we think it's instinctual is because we used to live in these big communities and women from day one were exposed to other women with babies, with kids. So it's like, we think it's instinctual, but really it's a learned behavior just because we were exposed to it. And not, but now we don't have that learned behavior because we're all in our separate little units. And you could be someone like me, who's an only child who has no siblings or cousins of any kind and has never even like done anything with a baby coming into being a mother, being like, I have no idea. Why am I here? (laughs) But and beyond, I mean, we take lamas, I guess, or birthing, and then we learn how to swaddle and we learn how to burp. But there are so many subtleties that nobody talks about. You know, and they say, you know, they're like, oh, parenting is the most beautiful thing and made me the happiest in the world. Um, Studies show now that really parenting is really hard, and although it's rewarding, not all, it's pretty selfless sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I was just thinking about the studies. I remember watching a TED Talk a long time ago with this couple who was, they had two or three children. And when they were they actually sort of did a research thing on it, on their own experience and how much their happiness dipped in the first three to five years of their child's life. So with three children, imagine it's like about 15 years or so, maybe a little less, of there being a pretty significant dip before it goes up. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Like I always think about the fact that, you know, it's usually grandparents or other people talking to you about how, you know, motherhood is the best, most blissful, you know, puppies and unicorns. And honestly, I think, you know, our brain is very good at protecting ourselves. So I think something like an experience of having a child, what, as we get older, what gets left of it is the good memories. The bad memories, they go away because otherwise, if we kept all the bad memories, we wouldn't want to do this because on everyday basis, this is, parenting is so difficult. It is such hard work. It is so much output from you. Like, you know, like for example, today we're recording a little bit later because I had to go pick up my son from school because he felt sick, right? Like I had to drop everything I was doing, tend to him. 
And that's kind of our life with children. We might have these plans, but if they're not feeling well, something's not going well, we're going to drop all of them and ensure that their, sa- their safety and confidence are coming first. But who is the one that picks them up from school when they're sick? Yeah, usually the mom. Very typically the mom, because we're set up with, you know, either mom works from home or mom is a stay-at-home or mom works in a job that's closer geographically or has more flexible hours, right? Like, it is very true that usually in a two-people family, the mom is the one who arranges her work life or her life around the child and the child's schedule. And the dad essentially works as if not much has changed. Yeah, and I was the breadwinner when I was married and my daughter was young, and I was still the first one on the call list and usually one expected to pick. And then, Dad, oh, her dad, how nice, her dad picked her up. You know, and women aren't honored or revered for putting their careers on the line or, you know, or being more flexible or having to do that more work. No, of course, women get penalized. I mean, we know that. We know that even though uh, nowadays when we have more girls graduating college than we do have boys, as we progress in the career, the men out-earn the women. And then when you break it down even more, the women who are single and childless, they their earnings end up being pretty on par with the other, with the other men. You don't see that for mothers. Mothers fall behind very quickly. Yes, and a lot of times, and if they do take time off and they go back into the workforce, they're like, what were you doing during this time? And motherhood isn't looked at as something you can put on your resume or as a valued working person in society. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're looked at as your goal or your focus is elsewhere. So there go, you're not as good of a worker as somebody else. Even though we also know when we talk to working moms is that the working moms manage to get more done in a shorter period of time than their other co-workers because they know they are on a time limit. They have to get this done by four o'clock to get out to go pick up their children from aftercare, right? Women don't stop being ambitious just because they become mothers. I think a lot of times women are forced to stop being ambitious because they're being become mothers because you can't have it both ways. You you simply can't work as if you're not a parent and you can't parent as if you don't work. Like it's not possible. And there there's the dilemma. Do I have to give up myself in order to have children? And even though I don't think it's spoken aloud or talked about, it is a big dilemma coming on that because Um, Even though you may not know exactly the pressure or the struggle that it is, it's just a harder transition and more responsibility when, you know, especially a working woman. I ended up having to stay at home because of issues with childcare and some issues with my health. And, but I didn't exactly enjoy it either because I'm also one of those people. I enjoy working. I enjoy pursuing my own goals. And I don't, my goals were not having my kitchen cleaned every single day. Like it just doesn't bring me joy. Uh, so yeah, it's very hard and it's hard to sort of balance the two. And it's also hard to get out of it. I've been for a few years now trying to transition into working, but because the children have been mostly on me, I am, I am faced with that dilemma of like, how do I build a schedule around their needs? Because I can't get a job that prioritize where I have to prioritize the job because who's going to prioritize the kids. So yeah, it's a very difficult dilemma. After my divorce, when my daughter was three, we split up when she was three and a half, I had more time 
to work when he had her. And then I was able to be present with her. I was a better mom after the divorce. It was sad when she left, but I was also able to focus on finances and getting that done. And then I maybe a little bit of time for myself. And then I was more present and a better parent for her. Oh, absolutely. And I think we don't emphasize that enough for moms. And even when we do, moms are kind of like, well, where am I going to make the time? Because I have to do this, 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 and the other thing. All of it is on me. Yeah. it's um, If you're in that situation, the divorce might seem a lot easier because then you're free at least half of the time and you can get things done. But in a functioning family, it shouldn't be like that. Right. That's what I'm thinking with more parents. Shouldn't it be easier? Yeah. Yeah, you should be. You should be able to sit down with your partner and look at your gigantic to-do list. And I can guarantee you, if you bring the things that both of you do together, it's going to be a giant list. But split it up a little bit more equitably. And I mean equitably, not equally, because equally is often not fair and not possible. So somebody will have a more flexible job. Somebody will have a more time or more energy or better health. And so, yes, yeah, split the tasks that work for each parent. And so each parent can build in some time for rest and relaxation because it is absolutely necessary and vital for us as human beings. Like just because we become parents, to me, we stop being human and don't have any needs, even though society likes to treat it that way, but it can't be all about the children. Doing, doing, doing. Yes. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I find that a lot a lot of the times women lose themselves in becoming a parent. And they're told parenting should be number one. You all, you know, we. I, it's okay I give of myself. Um, and, and sometimes it's difficult having my clients or showing, you know, trying to get my clients to include self-care. You know, it's not a, bu- a bubble bath once a month. It's really a state of mind and putting yourself first. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I sometimes have a hard time convincing my clients to come to me because, you know, convincing a mom to prioritize herself over an hour of, you know, cleaning or doing something else or reading some sort of a book with the baby, it's very hard because the truth is it is really ingrained in our minds because of what we saw our mothers and grandmothers do, what society keeps telling us even now. As mothers, we are essentially told all the time, you there is no space for you as a human, as a woman, once children come into place. You're supposed to martyr yourself, put everything in the back burner, all about the kids. But the truth is, the women who do that, they're not happy. They don't come out feeling happy or healthy on the other end. Because one thing we have to realize, children aren't our property. We are given these Love. beings, these gifts to then send them out into the world. That is our job. Our job from day one is to start separating from them. And if all you do is you put all your time and energy into them, you make your identity about them, what happens when they leave? You are lost. And in reality, another thing happens, an actually very damaging thing. What did you teach your children? You, If you had a girl, you taught her, she should be doing the same. So she's basically only has a life until she becomes a mother and then she needs to lose herself. If you have a boy, you taught him that he can basically, once he becomes a parent, his life doesn't change. He can dump it all in his partner and move on with your life. Either way, it is not a good cycle to continue perpetuating. No. And what, yeah, leading by example. And two, I let my daughter struggle a lot, you know, and she had a checkbook and a debit card. Hard and I, and she's like, she went to school and it's a pretty, you know, well-to-do school. They all had cars given them and, you know, BMWs. She's like, 
Nobody knows how to balance a checkbook. Nobody knows how to write in cursive. (laughs) Allowing them to struggle is a gift. Yeah, I think so. I think we do. Like being a helicopter parent doesn't really pay off in the end because they have no ownership. They have no autonomy and no independence in that case. And we do want to put out independent, self-sufficient humans. But also, I think we want to change the narrative. I mean, so many of us have grown up with this narrative of do, 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 do. You have to be doing, doing, doing. And I think it's time to start breaking those cycles and pass on to our children that resting putting in time for relaxation and hobbies is just as equally important because you want to be productive. But in order to be productive, you need the rest. You need the creativity space, the space to play. And yeah, we need to start teaching that so that we have beings that are fully self-sufficient. And yeah, we let them struggle. We teach them. We also give them time to just be and say that it's okay. You don't have to keep doing things all the time. And being not being on electronics either, because I think a oh, lot yeah. of our being, Tom, especially kids, are on their phone. I mean, and adults too. And that's not being that's not being time. I kind of think of that as dissociative time, you know, where you kind of check out. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we need it, but ideally, uh, when I'm talking about hobbies, I am talk- talking about something more creative or physical or something like you know, sports like art dance whatever but that you're doing something that's actually nourishing you and like yeah just mindlessly watching tv isn't going to nourish you do you need this sometimes sure but that shouldn't be your main staple yeah but it's easier than going to find the ball or going to find the sled or you know putting your winter clothes on to go sled or yeah but yeah but it's for me personally I didn't grow up on electronics, but it's so much, you know, quality time with my kid was so much more important than things or electronics. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely a better way to go and to exist within the family. Mm -hmm. And what about social media's impact on how women feel about themselves in parenting? No, (laughs) I think it's a very negative one. That's like a giant black hole that so many moms go to. So one thing I'm seeing a lot is from first time moms, especially younger moms, is this desperation of, I saw this on Instagram, on TikTok, and my life doesn't look anything like that. And it is so hard to see and so painful because we're having women compare themselves to a five minute, three minute curated video that somebody put out and being like, my life doesn't measure up. But guess what? That person's life doesn't measure up to that at all. You don't know what they're actually doing. They're showing you a room in their house that looks perfect. The rest of their house could be completely trashed. They're having a five cute minutes with their child. They could be ignoring their child the rest of the time. You don't know that. We can't build our lives on five minutes of perfection. We don't, you know, we didn't have that. And I remember in while social media wasn't that big 20 years ago when I had my daughter, seeing those skinny moms as if they they didn't have a stretch mark and there was Photoshop then. But I used I remember how badly I felt about myself. Because I put on weight and I was breastfeeding and that was keeping weight on too, because that's what our bodies do. It hangs on to the fat and things when we're breastfeeding so we can produce more milk. Oh yeah. 
Of course. And the thing is, what I've noticed with social media is that with all their algorithm changes, they do watch what you're picking and like stopping on. So if, yeah, if you in your feed have some perfectly looking moms of how I dropped the weight within a week or whatever, you're going to have more of that. And you're going to think that, oh, a lot of moms are like that, but like, no, that's not the case. The reality is Instagram is picking this for you because it noticed you paid attention to it. Same with TikTok. Like they're they're smart AIs. They're learning, but that means they're also pushing forward this message towards you that may have nothing to do with reality, but it, it is enough to make you feel bad about yourself. Well, and it's already there even before you get pregnant and stretch marks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I said I felt like super stretch woman. And that's that's normal, but it also has an impact on your body, which is like, which is totally normal. And to be honest, I remember my daughter saw my stretch marks. I'm like, that's my medal of honor, baby. You know, that's from, that's from my nine months of service carrying you. <laughs> yeah, that's cute. And I think that's great because that, that means you normalize it for her because a lot of us, we also don't have this message celebrated, right? Because of social media and everything, what we get pushed is you need to bounce back after having a child you what we prize is a mom who doesn't look she's a look like she's ever been pregnant or given birth that is what we prize but most women don't have that uh luxury of not looking like that sure or genetic like, or know, genetic makeup yeah, yeah. And age, age makes such a big difference because the truth is whether you give birth in your early 20s or late teens versus you give birth in your 30s, that's a huge difference in your rebound time. Like for for me talking to, you know, my mom and my mom's generation, they've all had kids pretty early, uh, usually in their early 20s. And their experience was they have the baby, they come out, their, their stomach is completely flat, but that's giving birth at 20. When you do the same at 30, that's all work the same. Not at my, all. My mother compared, my mother was 19 when she had me and I, she was almost 20 and I was almost 35. So, and she mentioned too, she's just like, oh, blah, blah, comparing it. I'm like, that is 15 years difference. Oh, yeah. I had the same conversation with my mother who was very nice. They came up to me and said, oh, look at all this fat. I'm like, oh, gee, thanks, mom. Like, this is very helpful. Like, except we're forgetting that I'm about 12 years older when I gave birth than you were when you gave birth to me. So it's like, we're not really talking about the same bodies. If I was 18, when I gave birth, I don't think I'd look the same way postpartum as I did at 30. Like our bodies are, don't bounce back the same. And that's okay. It's normal, but it's true. We don't talk about it. But most importantly, we don't celebrate it. And so you already have a generation of women coming from this very toxic diet culture, like me included. Like I've always had a lot of issues with my body image. And then you go have a child, first there's pregnancy and then the postpartum and all the changes they keep having. And then we don't talk about how with each kid it changes even more. Because I had my second child only two and a half years later. So it's not like I got so much older. But my body didn't handle that pregnancy nearly as well or the postpartum. It was yeah. a completely different change. But we don't talk about that. We don't, we kind of say that that's somehow bad. It doesn't exist. You know, you're supposed to bounce back. But a lot of us don't. We don't bounce back because we're not really meant to. Yeah. And my grandmother, going coming from the Depression era and all that, she denied ever having labor pains or going through menopause. So I'm mm. like, wow. She's like, well, that never happened to me. She goes, I was here. Yeah. She was. She was handing out water when she was in labor. 
I'm just like, okay, yeah. I'm like, how much is true? I don't know. I wasn't there yet. I wasn't there until many years later, but it's like, it's like a badge of honor for her not to experience the pain that some, you know, some women do and some women don't. And yeah, I believe pain is pain is part of the process and part of the transformation too. Yeah. Yeah, and we yeah we don't really talk about it. And the thing is, if somebody didn't experience much pain or did bounce back from it really fast, that's great too, and that should be celebrated. But we shouldn't put that experience above everybody else's experience. Like I, I think we also need to get into the mindset that just because we celebrate one experience, that doesn't mean that we negate the other and pretend it doesn't exist. All experiences are valid, and that's the other thing that we don't talk about enough in motherhood is that each one of us has a very unique experience, but there is a very common thread collectively, and that's why it's important to be part of a community because a lot of the times when we're isolated, we think what's happening is only happening to me. My child is misbehaving. This is only my child. And only when you're around others, do you realize, well, look at this. Other children do this. Talk to other moms who are willing to be honest. And they're like, oh, well, this happened to me too. And then you realize like, sure, it's unique to you, but there's actually this commonality and it makes you feel better that you're not some sort of a freak who didn't handle this pregnancy and postpartum like a rock star. No, you're normal. It takes some vulnerability to get out there and be honest about your fears or your depression. All of us at one point say, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible parent. I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, and I can make a bet that every woman has felt like that at one point or another. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's also important to acknowledge. And I think that's where cycle breaking comes in is that while when we're breaking cycles, we become more aware. Awareness is painful. When you're more aware of things, it is very painful and it's hard sometimes to get through it. But it's also an important, you were saying pain is part of the transformation. I think emotional pain is part of the transformation too. Because when we are in that pain, we can actually see what's happening. We could, And we can see what can change and what can be better. So it is important to be in that mind, mindset and to allow pain to just be there and learn from it and see what can you do better? How can you change this? How can we change this pain into something else? But we shouldn't gloss over pain, which is what we like to do because Sure, it's uncomfortable. We don't want it. So let's let's push it to the side. But, but you never heal that way. Not physically, not emotionally, not mentally or spiritually. When Either we way. bury it, I always say it comes out sideways. Get oh, out. It, does. it either comes out passive aggressively and you don't you don't even realize it when the pain comes out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of because I'm also a certified EFT practitioner. That's what EFT is all about. We work on, you know, all your emotions that all of a sudden are now perhaps coming out as physical issues, some very serious ones, because, yeah, we think that like, oh, I buried it. It's not there. But, you know, and then you have chronic back pain that isn't cured by anything. And there's no underlying reason. But guess what? That's probably trauma. You know, talk about panic attacks. People are always so confused about, well, I wasn't doing anything and this panic attack came on. Like, where did it come from? What was the trigger? The trigger is there's trauma sitting in the back and it's coming out at random times. It's not something you just did right now. And it's going to take more generation, more generation of people like us willing to talk about it and willing to sort of expose their vulnerabilities so that other people who are more scared of it can also first hear it, internalize it, and then maybe start coming out and sharing their pain too. Yeah. I was so afraid, even though like I did have support and 
um, of all the feelings that were coming. Like, and I was a therapist already for what, 10, 10 years. I had a private practice. I'm like, ah, I got this. Like, what's going to come up? And, and I think it does in listeners for everyone in one way or another. Like, and having your child's needs change all the time and trying to stay on top of it, you're not always going to be graceful in doing that. And you're going to have things up. Too. And like you talked about spinning plates, right? Was that your analogy? It's like we're spinning so many plates. Yeah. Yeah. Lots, lots. And the thing is, we're doing it without a real map. We sort of have this weird blueprint from our family of origin. And that blueprint can either be something that we want to emulate or it's a blueprint of what not to do. But having a blueprint of what not to do isn't the same as having a blueprint of what to do. So we are stumbling through motherhood completely unprepared or parenthood. And then it's us and our partner bringing in sometimes completely conflicting ideas and trying to raise this one child while sort of keeping it together and trying to come to a medium or sometimes not because you do see this a lot in couples where people argue and say, my way is the best way. We only do it my way. And now so, and that not, comes up in couples without children, but then it's magnified yeah. when you're trying to keep little life alive. Yeah. Getting out of that stuck idea that just because you were raised a certain way or you have certain beliefs about something doesn't necessarily make it right. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's where cycle breaking comes in and not everybody's ready for it. But... You know, a lot of people are, and it's still, it's hard no matter where you are. It's hard having your beliefs challenged and bombarded. And when you have this information coming at you that you're doing it all wrong, you know, that, that sort of kind of takes your self-esteem away that can make you question yourself. And even when you know that things were done the wrong way and you want to do it a different way, again, just knowing what not to do hasn't taught you what to do. You're still stumbling, trying to figure out what to do. And so, yeah, it is, it's, a very difficult place because you do have so many plates spinning so so many identities so many lives so many things and yeah it's very difficult yeah and the changes that i went through personally too having a childbirth experience and then i had ended up having to have a c section and then I had some shame there. Oh, why couldn't you hold out for the natural childbirth? Or what was wrong with your body? Well, thank God they had C-sections because I'm okay and my daughter's okay too. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of shame in motherhood. And again, it comes externally and it comes internally because a lot of things start getting brought up. And it's, yeah, it's a very difficult hole to climb out of and to not spin out in this vicious cycle of shame, shame, shame coming at you everywhere. So you talked about some things that a mother or a woman can do to reach out and not feel so isolated, but what are some other things that women can do to help alleviate some of the shame, to deal with some of this trauma and to try to get like equal reciprocity when it comes to parenting? So I think, you know, therapy is always, you know, one of the first go-tos I tell people that, you know, therapy isn't just for someone who is in a severe mental health crisis. Therapy is for everybody. So therapy is definitely one of the things that I recommend. You know, we also know there's issues right now getting to therapists because therapists are so overwhelmed. There is other alternative healing modalities that also help. You know, you can find uh, coaches that specialize in motherhood to help you along the way. You know, that is one of the things I do. I also do um, 
EFT, which is emotional freedom technique. And that is a great technique for clearing out trauma. It works on shame really well because shame is one of those darkest emotions that just weighs everything down. And EFT helps you clear this out. Reiki is another great energy healing technique that works with that. Then you can go into self-help techniques, yoga. Yoga is amazing. You can even find yoga specifically for trauma. So it could be a therapeutic experience as well. Uh, meditations are very good. I also do a self-compassion practice, which is a very specifically guided meditation geared at building your self-compassionate voice because we all have a very strong self-critic, but our compassion is pretty much silent most of the time. And then you know, making sure to build up boundaries, which a lot of that comes from, you know, sometimes going through therapy and through or through any of the other healing modalities and sort of realizing that, you know, I have these things I really want to protect. Boundaries are very important and we need to learn them. And making sure we make time for doing fun things because that's the one thing that really goes is we don't know how to have fun. We don't know how to sort of let go and not be so serious about it, but it's actually important. It's important for us, for our inner child. It's also important for our children to see like mom and dad are just having fun and they're being silly. It is a healthy model. So finding healthy models around you is very important. And yeah, connecting connecting whether you do it in person with classes, whether you do it virtually through Facebook communities or through virtual classes. I think it's very important because the one thing, the most important thing I think for all moms is to not isolate yourself because in isolation, that's where postpartum depression and anxiety grow. That's where all of the negative things, they just grow. So the, the most important thing is not to isolate. And then there's all these other tools available to you out there that you could do for yourself. I mean, even if you want to just sit down and color a book, that's a great little therapeutic thing that you can do for yourself. Those are great suggestions, and you and I are very similar. So I, I'm a Reiki practitioner and a yoga, you know, a yoga therapy background, and yes, I totally agree. And especially I've um, noted with Reiki, it's like people when they're really traumatized and they can't process things, their frontal lobe, mm-hmm. Reiki or yoga works wonders. It's just getting back to the body and the somatic experience. So very healing and you don't have to think or process things. And I think it's a good start, but then later speaking or expressing these fears, this shame, this hurt is so very important. Yeah. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of therapy. Like I, you know, EFT does something very similar with Reiki also, like it clears out all this like negative stuck trauma. But then again, just because you cleared out the negative doesn't mean you filled it in with positive. And I think that's where... Um, either specialized coaching that's specifically geared towards, you know, moms or therapy is needed because you need to then still build those positive uh, habits and positive experiences and yeah, learn how to express yourself. So yeah, I think doing those together is incredibly important and incredibly healing. There's a power in allowing yourself to work with somebody and hold, have them hold space for you. Because you're holding space for so many other people and having that person, there's something very healing in that too. And asking asking for help. It's um, very healing. 
Yeah, but it's scary. I mean, we're always sensitive where you're asking for help, that you're weak, you don't know what you're doing. And so a lot of people don't, but I'll agree with you. Having even that one hour a week when somebody holds space for you is amazing. Like I look forward to my therapy sessions or like, because it's just so nice because it really is an hour of just you where you don't have to be the mom. There's somebody else essentially mothering you. And that's what all of us are missing because our mothers oftentimes can't mother us when we become mothers because it brings up their trauma and they're just not able to be there for us. But your therapist, they can be there for you. Your Reiki practitioner could be there for you. Your EFT practitioner could be there for you. Uh, another uh, somatic experience therapist can be there for you. They hold that space for you to be safe and to process. And I think it is important to allow yourself at least one hour in a week to just have that space because that that is that is where the real healing happens. And then you can carry it on throughout the day and you know like I do my EFT practices five minutes here and there and it makes me feel good if I need like a boost or I'll devote like a half hour myself doing it when I need something more serious and I think that's also important that we continue to um carry on yeah yes yes fill our cup because our cup is empty and we keep trying to pour out of it no no go (laughs) it's not gonna happen well fabulous how can people reach you to work with you yeah, absolutely. You can find me online at parentsonboard.com. You can learn more about what I do and what I offer. You can follow me on Instagram at Parents on Board Coaching. Follow me on TikTok at Parents on Board Coaching. Um, same for Facebook. So yeah, there's many places that you can reach me and talk with me. And I, I love chatting with people and answering questions and being a resource for those moms who are struggling. And, you know, even though I say I specialize in moms with postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, even if you don't have that as your official diagnosis, please talk to me if you feel like you're struggling because you don't have to have an official diagnosis to need help. Oh, love that. I'm glad you added that. Maria, thank you. Thank you. It was so exciting to have you on and talk about your work and and how important this population is. And, you know, if any of you listeners, I, I definitely recommend Maria. She has such great energy and a wealth of knowledge. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea, and thank you for be, for letting me participate in this and sharing this with your listeners. And thank you, listeners, for listening in with us on the Love Anarchy podcast in the Relationship Rebellion, where we get deep about love, relationships, and dating. I'm your host, Andrea Atherton, Mindset and Love Coach, signing off with you today. But before I do... I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening in with us because I know there's a myriad of podcasts in which you can listen to. Please don't forget to subscribe, ring the bell. It supports the podcast so much. Don't forget to tell your friends so they can listen too. If you want to get more involved in the Relationship Rebellion and the Love Anarchy community, you can find us on Facebook, the Love Anarchy Podcast. I'd like to leave you with my favorite short but sweet quote, love is the only true power.